We're going to deal with the difficult question that we avoided this morning, namely, who are the sons of God in this passage? Let me begin this way, though. Um, it is uh, an, a neat and amazing thing for me to look over my life, and I know I haven't lived as long as many of you, but uh, to look over back on my life and to see the different people that God has used in a unique way uh, as He has been shaping me, maturing me, and uh, sanctifying me. And I know you could say the same thing. You could think back over your life at all the different people that God has used in a beneficial way in your life. Well, one of the most unique people to have a significant impact on my spiritual development was Johnny Cash. Um, I was at Rutherford High School in Panama City, Florida. I went there my freshman and sophomore year. Um, I can't remember which year it was, but I, I, we were in the library. I guess maybe we were in a class and we were in the library, or maybe I was just a nerd and was in the library. I don't know, but I was in the library. And, uh, and there I discovered a book entitled The Man in White. That book was written by Johnny Cash. Now, at the time, I had no idea who Johnny Cash was. I had never heard any of his music. I did not know that he was called the man in black. had no idea about that. I didn't know that he had converted to Christianity. I didn't know about his work with uh, the Billy Graham uh, Evangelistic Association. I, I didn't know about any of that. I just came across this book called The Man in White that's about the Apostle Paul. Basically, Johnny Cash uses his imagination and writes this fictional book, but it's based on the true story of Paul's conversion. And in a sense, the book is Paul's testimony of how he was saved as imagined through the mind of Johnny Cash. Um, at that time in my life, uh, I had a very man-centered view of God um, I had no idea, never heard of Calvinism or anything like that. Uh, my view of God was very man-centered. Salvation, in my mind, in those days was very much something you do. You pray this prayer and you really mean it, and then, and then because you've done that well, God rewards you with salvation. It was, I was really mixed up and uh, really confused and, and, and had a lot of misunderstandings. And, and into my life came this book by Johnny Cash about the salvation of the Apostle Paul and how God stepped into Paul's life, right? Paul wasn't seeking God. He was persecuting the church and how God stepped into Paul's life and radically changed him. And despite all the wickedness of Paul, including looking on at the stoning of Stephen, God was willing to forgive and use the apostle Paul. Johnny Cash was able to write that kind of a story about the grace of God in Paul's life because Johnny Cash felt a kinship to Paul. He had experienced something kind of similar. Now, he wasn't thrown off a... You know, actually, the passage never says Paul was thrown off a donkey. I think we imagine that. But, uh, you know, there, there is... Um, or does it? I, I can't remember now. We had a discussion about this the other day. Uh, anyway... Paul was going down the road, and he, Jesus appeared to him uh, out of nowhere and just gripped Paul's life. Well, that didn't exactly happen to Johnny Cash, but Johnny Cash had an experience that changed his life. Uh, he knew that he, too, had been a very wicked man before God saved him. Uh, Johnny Cash once said he had tried every drug there was to try. 
He had been an alcoholic. He was a drug addict. He was hooked on amphetamines. He was hooked on barbiturates. And uh, he lived in sexual immorality. He had numerous affairs that ultimately led to the divorce of his first marriage, the end of his first marriage. In 1968, high on drugs and wanting to die, Johnny Cash tried to commit suicide by going into Nickajack Cave a cave near his home where growing up he had heard all the stories about people who wandered into that cave and never came out alive. And so, uh, doped up on these drugs and drunk, he wanders into this cave with the plan that he's going to lay down somewhere in that cave and die. He wants to get lost and never come back. He descended into the darkness of the cave until he was exhausted and he passed out on the floor. Cash says that suddenly he felt the presence of God with him in that cave. He had grown up in church. He had learned about Christ as a child. And he says, out of nowhere, in the midst of this darkness, both physical darkness of the cave and the spiritual darkness of his own heart, he said he suddenly had the realization that his life could be new if he would turn to God. And so completely exhausted, but with a new will to live, Cash wandered through the cave until he felt a a faint breeze, and he followed that until he found a faint light, and he was able to find his way out of the cave. And and, uh, Johnny Cash would, would look at this experience as being the moment in which he was born again. Soon after, he joined a local church near his home. He conquered his addictions with the help of friends over a month and uh, would eventually go on to serve the Lord through his gospel music, through giving his testimony, and writing a book about God's grace that somehow fell into my hands in the providence of God and, and uh, gave me a new picture of who God is and uh, his sovereignty and salvation. What does all this have to do with Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and the sons of God? Well, you'll see at the end. Okay, we'll come back to it. So, for now, uh, let's talk about the sons of God. Uh, Let's talk about who these were. The sons of God that came into the daughters of man, took them as their wives, and then bore children who were the Nephilim, these mighty men, these strong men, these perhaps giant of men. There are currently three prevalent views about who these sons of God were. So, uh, see if you can follow these. Okay, number one. The sons of God, according to some, are the men from the lineage of Seth. Remember the godly line of Seth that we looked at last Sunday night? right? The, the line that had Enoch who walked with God. The line that produced Enosh who during his time people began to call on the name of the Lord. The godly line from whom Noah would come. In the midst of a world that was going wicked, there was this godly line of Seth. And some think that the sons of God in this passage are these men of the godly line of Seth who intermarried with people who were not a part of that godly line. Those who who intermarried with the daughters of those who were not of the same faith. Uh, Particularly, many believe that this is the sons of Seth uh, marrying the daughters of Cain. And so sort of leaving the, the faith family and intermarrying where they should not have intermarried. Uh, We know later in Genesis, when Abraham wants to find a wife for his son Isaac, he makes his servant swear 
that his son Isaac will not take a wife from among the Canaanites, but will return to Abraham's home of Mesopotamia and and find a wife who is uh, within the close line of the family. Similarly, Isaac uh, desired that Jacob and Esau not intermarry with the Canaanite women, but return to their family and find a spouse from among the extended family. Uh, Later, God would command his people Israel not to intermarry with the pagan peoples around them in Canaan, lest the pagan wives lead the hearts of these men away from the living God. And so here, uh, perhaps God has taught the Sethites, the, the sons of Seth, not to intermarry with the wicked women who are not descendants of Seth. And their sin is that they did so anyway. Now, if so, we can certainly say that this teaching carries over to the New Testament and to our very lives. Um, We have become servants of Jesus, and we have humbled ourselves before Him. And we are to look to Jesus for everything, including His guidance and instruction concerning whom we should marry. And Jesus, through His Word, tells us explicitly that we are to marry believers. We are explicitly forbidden from marrying those who are outside of the faith. We are to look for a spouse who is also a part of our family, the family of God. A Christian woman should look for a brother in Christ to be her husband and to care for her body and soul. A Christian man should look for a sister in Christ to become his wife and to become his helpmate in his holy calling. Those who call Jesus Lord, but refuse to obey Him in this, one of the most important decisions of their lives, um, reveal with their actions something about the the reality of their relationship to Christ. Uh, What does it mean to call Jesus Lord with your lips if you're not going to obey Him in the most important decisions of your life? And so... um, It's possible that that's the meaning here and that that's the application for us, that we are to marry within the faith. And since this theme occurs so often in scriptures, it would not surprise us to see it here. It would explain how the godly line of Seth, the holy remnant, became corrupt so that by the time we get to Noah, he's the only righteous man that God seems to see on the earth to preserve. But there are some, some issues with this view. Uh, first, nowhere else in the Old Testament is the phrase, the sons of God, used to refer to God's people. Uh, rather, in the three occasions that it's used outside of this passage, so only three other times in the whole Old Testament is somebody or a group of people called the sons of God. And in all three of those occasions, all in the book of Job, the references are clearly to angels not to human beings. Second, the problem with this view is that it is not at all proven that the descendants of Seth could be called the sons of God. Um, Because though this was the holy line, and certainly there were many uh, godly men who were, were in this line, this doesn't mean that Everyone in that line was godly. We certainly don't know that everyone who was a part of of the lineage of Seth uh, was a believer and was born again. Third, uh, there's the question of the Nephilim in verse 4. We have these mighty men, perhaps giants, who were born of the sons of God coming into the daughters of men. But if the sons of God are simply men from the Sethite family, 
marrying other daughters of the world, why would that produce these unusually strong men, um, perhaps giants? And then finally, as we will see in just a few moments, the book of Jude seems to look back at this passage and understand it to be referring to angelic beings, not human beings. The second view then, uh, is, and this is where we'll spend most of our time, is that the sons of God are fallen angels who took human wives and produced unusual offspring. Um, now, as strange as that view sounds to our modern ears, it does have a lot of evidence supporting it. Um, theologically, it's difficult, and perhaps the least likely view we would choose theologically, but textually, uh, it does seem to be, in my opinion, the most likely Um, As we already noted, the phrase, the sons of God, refers exclusively to angels elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, You may remember the sons of God are those that come in Job 1 and Job 2 and present themselves to God in heaven, and Satan makes an appearance among them. It's when God says, have you considered my servant Job? That's, That's at that gathering when the sons of God, the angels, make an appearance before God. Moreover, Uh, The Jews of Jesus' day overwhelmingly understood the sons of God in Genesis 6 to be referring to angels. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of this, the Greek Bible uh, that was used by uh, a lot of folks in Jesus' day, actually translated the sons of God here as angels. John Walton says that as far as we can tell, this was the unanimous understanding of the passage until the 2nd century A.D. When we come to the letters of 2 Peter and Jude, and particularly Jude, uh, there is good evidence that these apostles did understand this passage to be speaking about angels. And probably the key text is Jude 6 and 7. So go with me to Jude. Do you spend much time in Jude? Let's go to Jude. Jude 6 and 7. Jude, of course, is right before Revelation. Next to last book of the Bible. Jude, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4 and read through verse 7. So Jude 4 says this. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt... By the way, when the Jehovah's Witness comes and tells you that Jesus is not God, ask them, who saved the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt? Wasn't that God? Who does Jude say saved the people out of the land of Egypt in verse 5? Jesus. Yeah? Just a little. That one's free, okay? You can have that. Jesus is God. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities 
which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. In Jude 4 through 7, an argument is being made that certain ungodly people have crept into the church of God, but they will not escape God's judgment. And Jude uses three examples of God's judgment in the past as a reminder and a warning about how God is going to relate to these wicked people in the future. His first example of God's judgment in the past is Jude 5, and it's the Israelites who Jesus, God, brought out of Egypt. And yet later, those same Israelites died in the wilderness because they would not trust their God. They had seen some of the mightiest acts of God this world has ever known and heard, the the plagues on Egypt, the, uh, the, the separating of the Red Sea. They had seen these things with their eyes. They heard the voice of God thundering forth His Ten Words, His Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and yet having experienced all of these blessings when faced with the Canaanites, those Nephilim before whom they appeared as grasshoppers, their faith shriveled right up. And they didn't believe that God would give them the victory. As punishment for their lack of faith, that generation of Israelites was consigned to wandering in the wilderness until they passed away and a new generation of Israelites was led into the promised land. So the point of that first example is that even those who have known great blessings from God in the past will be judged and destroyed if they persist in unbelief. But then he comes to Jude 6, and this is the, uh, where it begins to deal with Genesis 6. Jude 6 again says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Jude speaks of angels who left their positions of authority and forsook their proper dwelling. Now, when you think of the fall of angels, uh, you probably usually think of the fall of angels as happening before Genesis 6. In fact, most of us would say that the fall of angels took place before Genesis 3. Um, And we say that mainly because when we think of the fall of angels, we think of the fall of Satan. And we know Satan fell before Genesis 3 because he shows up in Genesis 3 as a serpent. But what's interesting is that uh, in the days of Jesus, in the first century, the widespread notion was actually that Genesis 6 is an account of the fall of angels. Now, there was agreement also that Satan had fallen before this. But in that day, it was assumed that Genesis 6 was a reference. The passage we're studying was a reference to the fall of at least some angels. One book that was very influential and widely regarded uh, in the first century, taught this. Listen to this. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men. And beget us children. There were in all two hundred. They took to themselves wives, each chose for himself one, and they began to go into them and defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments, and they became pregnant 
and they bore great giants, whose height was three thousand ells. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and became corrupt in all their ways. Now that quote is from a book called First Enoch, and it's actually found in the Apocrypha. So if you ever meet a Roman Catholic and look at a Roman Catholic Bible, uh, that book is in their books of the Bible that they put between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, now, First Enoch, we believe, and I believe is accurate, is not a part of Holy Scripture. And that book does contain some false statements. But the reason First Enoch and its view of Genesis 6 is important is because Jude directly quotes from First Enoch in verses 14 and 15. Um, look at verse 14 and 15 of Jude. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, and then he gives a quote. That quote is from First Enoch. Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We looked at that verse actually last week when we talked about Enoch and the preaching of Enoch. But the other reason that this is important is because Jude, in verse 6, is almost quoting First Enoch. Like there's only just three or four words that are different between what Jude writes and what First Enoch had written before him. And so most scholars are in agreement that Jude is using and referring to this book called First Enoch when he writes what he writes here. In fact, uh, Tom Schreiner says that any average Jewish reader in Jude's day would have understood Jude 6 to be referring to Genesis 6. Now, if that's so, then Jude, like the mainstream of his day, understood the sons of God in Genesis 6 to be angels. Now, further proof of this is in Jude 7. So look at Jude. Are you with me? Are you with me so far? All right, look at Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Two words to note in verse 7. First, note the word likewise. You see the word likewise? Do you see how that word functions in verse 7? He just talked about these angels that left their proper dwelling. And then verse 7 he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. So he seems to be making a comparison between the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was a, a place of sexual immorality, he seems to be making a comparison between their sin and the sin of these angels in verse 6. Right? We have these angels who committed sin. They left their proper dwellings in verse 6. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah committed sexual immorality. Now, if that is how he's using that, and, and most think that that is how he's using that, um, then it would have to refer to Genesis 6 because there's no other place in the Bible that talks about angels committing sexual immorality. And so it would have to be a reference to these sons of God in Genesis 6. The other word I want you to note in Jude 7 is the word unnatural. Do you see the word unnatural? That's what it is in the ESV, and pursued unnatural desire. Uh, in the Greek, that is literally and pursued other 
flesh. The King James Version kind of gets the idea of it when it says, and pursued strange flesh. In other words, the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah was not just normal sexual immorality of men and women sleeping together out of wedlock. Rather, the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah was of pursuing other flesh, strange flesh. Um, Now, this is probably a reference to homosexuality, of men pursuing other men and women pursuing other women. But it's interesting that there's a comparison here between the angels in verse 6 and Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7, right? Um, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire and pursued other flesh. Do you remember the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and how these angels visit his house? And we read both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house of Lot and demanded that he put those two angelic men outside of his house that they could rape them. Now that's pursuing strange flesh. That's a strange story, isn't it? And so there seems to be a comparison here between the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and these angels in verse 6. They likewise committed sexual immorality. They likewise pursued strange flesh. This time it wasn't the men pursuing angels. It was angels taking for themselves human wives. Now, if this interpretation of the sons of God in Genesis 6 is correct, then the message of the text seems to be that these fallen angels contributed to the wickedness of man on the earth by entering into human society, committing sexual immorality with women because they are angels, not men, though they took the form of men, and they ultimately produced a race of super strong, violent men. Genesis 3, Satan radically contributed to the downfall of the human race. In Genesis 6, Satan and his legions uh, seem to be doing the same thing. Now, all of that said, this view is not without its problems. It's not a perfect view. Uh, first, Matthew twenty-two thirty, Jesus said that the angels in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage. So how would that square with these angels in Genesis 6 taking human wives and marrying them? And one answer is simply to notice that Jesus said that marriage is not an institution in which angels participate in heaven, but that does not necessarily mean that fallen angels might not come to earth as men and do so. Uh, Later in Genesis, just you know, sometimes in our minds we have this idea, well, what would that be like? Angels and people, that's just weird, and it ought to be weird. It is unnatural. It isn't the way God ordered things to be. But in the Bible, we do read of angels eating. We do read of angels drinking. We do read of angels talking. We do read of angels resting and having their feet washed. When angels came to earth as men, they could do the things that men do. Um, In fact, what does Hebrews tell us? You know, to to be hospitable to all because you don't know when you might be being hospitable to an angel unawares, right? When they come as human beings, they come very much like a human being and can do what humans do. Um, second problem uh, with this view, a second weakness, is it, it go back to Genesis 6 so you can see this weakness. Uh, in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is this. If it is angels who come into the daughters of men here, if it is angels who commit the sin of verse 2, 
Why does God declare His judgment on man in verse 3? See it? Verse 2, sons of God, angels perhaps, saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. We looked at that verse this morning. So God declares his judgment on man. Why would God declare his judgment on man if the sin just committed was the sin of angels? The only way I know to answer that objection is to suggest that God is judging man, not particularly because of the sins of the angels, but because the influence of those angels on the human race has been a growth in the wickedness of man. And so God is still judging man. Think about how the Nephilim, who were men, they were mighty men of renown. So these, these men, who were the offspring of angels and daughters of man, perhaps, uh, led to violence increasing in the earth. Verse 11, verse 13 of Genesis 6 talk about how violence was increasing on the earth and how that brought about God's judgment in the flood. And so perhaps that is what is happening here that brings about God's declaration of judgment. Now... There are many who are not convinced by that argument for the sons of God being angels. They say they must be human beings. So that brings us to the third view, and this one we'll cover very quickly. And that's that the sons of God are human tyrants who formed harems for themselves. Um, it has long been a minority view since the second or third century that in these verses refer to the sons of God as human kings who followed in Cain's footsteps and tried to create a kingdom for themselves. And that these sons of God, because they were called sons of God because they were powerful and because the people thought that, that the God's blessings must be upon them and said that these men became so powerful that they could take any wife they chose. And so that here in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the beginning of harems, men taking for themselves scores of women to be their wives for their own pleasure. Now, uh, that view has a lot of problems, beginning with it doesn't fit with what we saw in the book of Jude. Um, it doesn't explain why the children of these human tyrants with their wives would somehow produce this super strong race of men. But in recent years, there has been a combining of this view with the angel's view. With a, it's kind of a twist and this has quickly become the predominant view. I have about 12 commentaries on Genesis that I'm using, and um, I would say eight of them took this view, okay? And it's the view that says the sons of God are human beings who are possessed by demons. Okay? It says that rather than being fallen angels in human form, these are real human beings who are supernaturally empowered by these evil spirits. Now, they like that view because they say it fits with Jude. It fits with Jesus' teaching about angels not marrying. It explains why the children of these men would be normal human children and yet super strong. And so this view seems to, to fit all of the objections. Um, except, again, the phrase, the sons of God, never refers to human kings anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, in the culture of the ancient Near East, for example, in Egypt, the Pharaoh was sometimes called a son of God. But nowhere in the Bible do we find the sons of God referring to human tyrants. So, what do we conclude? Well, I guess that's for you to conclude. 
All three views have their strengths and their weaknesses. It is terrible for me as a preacher because I really believe that my job is to do the best I can to explain a text. It's hard to explain a text when you don't know what it means. <laughs> so, uh, so what I've tried to do is to present to you the three views as I understand them. The evidence inclines me to favor the angel's view. Um, I still haven't been convinced out of that view, and that is the, the, the most ancient view, and it is the view that I think Jude is, is holding to there. Um, but I'm not dogmatic about that at all. And if somebody can bring more evidence to me that, that convinces me, don't, don't be surprised if a year from now I come to you and say somebody came to me, and it, you know, uh, that, that can happen, certainly. Now, Justin, that's all great. Is there any application here for us? Does this make any difference in our lives at all? Well, yes. And there are actually several applications I could have made, but I'm going to make just one because I think it is clearly here. Whoever these sons of God were, they were clearly committing grievous acts of sexual immorality. And how does God respond to this act, this taking of wives that they were not to have? How does God respond to this act of sexual immorality? He responds in verse 3 by declaring that his patience has reached an end and his judgment is coming. And as Jude reminds us, a very similar thing happened in Sodom and in Gomorrah. The citizens of those cities became involved in gross, rampant sexual immorality and the response was the judgment of God. Fire and brimstone rained down from heaven and the people were destroyed. A doctrine that I think we see in verses 2 and 3, is that sexual immorality brings the judgment of God. And I think we need to hear that as Americans. I think we need to hear that in our pornographic culture of sexuality is everywhere and sexual immorality is pervasive. We need to understand that unless a revival takes place in our country, God's judgment will Come upon our nation. It may come with the return of Christ when he comes to judge the wicked, I mean the, the living and the dead. If Jesus does not return first, God may judge America the way he judged other nations of the past, using other nations against us. Or God may simply judge America by giving us over to our sin. The fact is, a culture that becomes imbibed with sexual immorality will end up destroying itself because cultures only thrive when they reproduce new generations of well-rounded children. Homosexuality does not produce new generations of well-rounded children. Homosexuality does not produce children, right? Sexually immoral parents do not produce well-rounded children, but scarred children, children with deep wounds that need God's grace. A culture that is sexually immoral will ultimately destroy itself if God gives it over to its sin. So whether God judges us with fire and brimstone or simply by letting our sins catch up with us, sexual immorality will bring judgment to our nation unless God does a work of grace and mercy and changes the hearts of many in our culture. And so we ought to be praying for a genuine revival in our nation and in our land. We also need to hear this as individuals. Sexual immorality brings the judgment of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Please understand, it's not just sexual immorality that brings the judgment of God. All sin is deserving of the judgment of God. But since this passage, Genesis 6, is about sexual immorality, and since it is quite possible that people in this room are involved in such sin, I want to be clear tonight. Those who live in sexual immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's not my teaching, that's Paul's teaching. That's the teaching of Christ through Paul. You can quibble with me all day, and that's fine, but don't quibble with Christ. Now, thank God for the next verse. But such were, or and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. If you are living in sexual immorality, you can be saved and changed by turning to Christ and hating your sin and finding forgiveness. And so we come back to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash knew that God's judgment against sinners was coming because he learned it as a kid in church. One of his songs says this, You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, sooner or later. God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go tell that midnight rider. Tell the gambler and the rambler and the backbiter. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. Tell them that God's going to cut them down. You may throw your rock and then hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to the light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Cash understood that the judgment of God was coming against sinners. But he also knew that despite all his sinfulness, including his rampant sexual immorality, he found forgiveness in Christ and escaped that judgment. Like Paul, who the last person that the Christians in Jerusalem ever thought God would save because of his pride and his violence against the people of God, Johnny Cash was a great sinner who was saved by a greater Savior. He said in that same song, he said, Well, my goodness gracious, that's pure Johnny Cash, right? Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. My head's been wet with the midnight dew. Coming down on bended knees, talking to the man from Galilee, he spoke to me and spoke so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. He called my name and my heart stood still and he said, Johnny, go do my will. The point is this. You have not sunk so low that God's grace cannot reach you. 
Sexual immorality is a grievous sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from any and all sin. Amen? I'll close this way. This week I came across an account in, uh, written by Octavius Winslow back in the 1800s about a woman who had sunk so low and was so sure that God could not save her that she, like Johnny Cash, was about to commit suicide. Listen to what Octavius Winslow says about this lady. We can tell you of one who in her deep sorrow for sin was brought to the extreme of mental anguish, despairing of mercy, and anxious to anticipate the worst of her punishment, she resolved when none should be near her to terminate her life and to go reeking with her own blood to the bar of God. The fearful opportunity presented itself. The door was fastened, the knife prepared, and she fell on her knees to accomplish the awful deed. At the moment her hand was raised to give the fatal stroke, these words came to her mind with overwhelming power. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Her arm fell motionless at her side. The weapon dropped from her convulsed grasp, and she exclaimed in a transport of relief, If the blood of Christ Jesus cleanses from all sin, then why not mine too? She arose. Her fatal purpose was broken. Her shaken spirit was calmed, and her heart was drawn out in prayer to God. On the following Sabbath, she hastened to the house of God, and to her astonishment, the minister announced as his text, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The Holy Spirit completed the work so graciously begun in her soul. The blood of Christ was applied to her conscience, and from the terror and gloom of sin, she passed into the sunshine of God's full and free forgiveness. Octavius Winslow says, Anxious soul, you too may come. Why not you? True, you are unworthy. True, you are poor and penniless. So was this individual, but she obtained mercy. Why not you? So I would say, are you in need of mercy and forgiveness tonight? If so, God offers it freely to you. Go to Christ, receive this great gift, and find freedom from the power of sin. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, are there any questions about things that were said uh, this morning or this evening?